What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Cotter, AIA. This is American Building, and I'm your host, Atif Cotter. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect, Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now, let's build something. Today, our guest is architect Galia Solomonov. She is the founder and creative director of SAS Solomonov Architecture Studio based in New York City. Since 2004, the firm has designed 97 built projects, an incredible number for a firm of six designers. For her work, uh, she is a winner of the National Endowment of the Arts Grant. Previously, Galia founded Open Office. Besides her design work, she is a professor of architecture practice at Columbia. Today, we'll be talking about Philadelphia Art Alliance, which Galia completed in collaboration with Jacob Swiper Architects in 2019. The project preserved and reimagined a dilapidated building in the heart of Philadelphia owned by the University of the Arts. More broadly, we will talk about how art can be a part of good architecture, not just expensive architecture. So thank you so much for being here with us. Ati, what a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. Absolutely. So both of your parents were doctors and imparted on you a mathematical mind and a natural sense for geometry and space. What role did your parents play in your path towards architecture? The more I move forward, the more I see that science explains more and more things. My parents were very interested in what science can explain. And for them, it was about health. But for me, it started to be about beauty. You know, can science explain why a bird has beautiful colors or a flower opens up in the spring? And so it was a house that had a great sense of curiosity and the sense that there may be an answer for most things. And growing up, you uh, were in Argentina and in the 1980s, Argentina, like Chile and other Latin American countries, was ruled by an autocratic uh, dictator. And that resulted in a very contentious public environment. How did that kind of an experience growing up shape uh, your particular childhood and perhaps your outlook in, in design as you got started? The way the military governments from 1970 to 1982 shaped Argentina and my childhood was public space was not open. Was not, You could circulate, of course, you could use the street, 
you could use the squares, but you could not say whatever you wanted or act or protest or gather in large groups. And so my sense of public space was that it was not democratic space, that public space had uh, rules and also it shaped my understanding of things like the police, the military, the relationship between the way you behave in school and ended up in prison. And so all these things were uh, kind of connected. When you have an autocratic government, you have the sense that anything can be used against you. And so I grew up with that sensation and it took me many years in the U.S. to not be fearful of the police and we can talk about that more because it has changed in the last years. We could not be worried about um, going to get your passport or going to get a legal paper. The government would take the passports away from people and that would be just a mild reaction. It would be like without your passport for months and it would not be an explanation why you did not get your passport renewed or something like that. I think that that type of comparison is something that people who are new Americans like myself and yourself can really appreciate. So like, for example, with my family, that sense of impermanence is something that was a big part of life before coming to the United States. So we were expelled from Bahrain during the Iran-Iraq war and being able to come to the United States and not worry about someone basically saying, hey, tomorrow you're out of this country, is something that is such a unique aspect of the United States that I don't think enough people kind of appreciate this kind of dichotomy in like the 1980s, 1990s, around that time. So I thank you for bringing that up. And I do have that uh, same dialogue with my son, who is American, raised and born here, born and raised here, not to take for granted the way things are here. Absolutely. And then with that kind of a background, that type of context, you went to architecture school and you were determined to be able to practice in this kind of wide breadth of imagination, both from the smallest scale to the largest scale. Could you talk about what your education in architecture was like and what that approach was like, uh, say, perhaps in comparison to what you now know uh, in the United States? So I came to architecture through the Instituto Politecnico Superior, which is an engineering high school. And the sense that major difference between the way architecture is taught in Argentina to the way architecture is taught in other places and and in the U.S. is that architecture is considered a part of design. So that it goes from urbanism to architecture to object design, to graphic design. And so it's, and the sense is that all these share rules. And so, for example, the first exercise as a student of architecture in first year in Argentina, when I was a student in the mid-80s, was to, the late 80s, was to design a building in a court, in a city corner and to consider how the streets become the entrance, how the entrance becomes a room, how the room has windows that look out. So it's a a circle. You go from outside in and then from inside out as a circle. And so that 
since has been uh, uh, kind of something that I keep thinking about as I as I am an educator myself. Cool. And in terms of that early the early education that you had there, you then moved after a year. You transferred to City College in New York City and then Columbia. How would you compare, you described the educational differences between them. Could you describe some of the social differences of being a student at the Polytechnic versus City College and then versus Columbia? So when I came to the U.S., I had no real interaction before to anyone from the African continent or descendant from Africa, even though I, part of my heritage, North African in part, but I had had very limited understanding of the history of the United States, African-American history, or, or African-American people within the United States. And, and so in Argentina, it was based, it was, my social context was mostly based in class, understanding that there are different class and there's class struggles and there's kind of like that uh, very 1970s confrontation between working class uh, and, and, um, and the ruling class and, and more, of like of, more of like a Marxist frame of thought. And then when I came to the U.S. at City College first, first I was in the lower part of society in general. I was a poor student with very little access to anything that class and education allows you here. Uh, of course, I had my own background and education, and so it was not that difficult once I knew where MoMA was or where at the end of the year show at Cooper Union was or uh, these things. So you immediately understand, I can access these. You can get a, a newspaper, in the newspaper there, a list of, uh, at that moment was the Village Voice, and you could find things to do in libraries, in Lincoln Center, go to free concerts. And so immediately I tapped into that environment. And then at City College, the biggest change for me was to encounter African-Americans, African-Africans, and Caribbean-Africans. And understanding how much I had in common with Caribbean-Africans. We could talk in Spanish. We could talk about Spain as being a colonial power. Uh, we could have all these kind of different arguments. And then it was very exciting and difficult to see how any moment in history in the context of City College would become incredibly contested. So it didn't matter what we were talking about, whether we were talking about World War One or Martin Luther King, people would have... or. French education, everything would be, become a complete discussion between, and the different point of view between African-Americans, Haitians, uh, Nigerians, Kenyans, and all these different points of view. And, and I realized how complex. And then a few years later, I go to uh, Colombia, and the things that were so vibrant, vibrant as discussion became completely academic, like Martin Luther King was somebody completely remote. It, it was very different to see this is in the 90s, which is very different than now. 
but it, but the kind of the sense of politics at Columbia, even though Bernard Schumann was there, but it was the concentration at Columbia was much more informed and much less in politics. Politics was not not engaged at that time as a as a subject matter of of current importance. It was more of like maybe historical uh, relevance if you were talking about World War II and the Bauhaus, but it was not something that you would be talking as having an immediate effect on what we were doing as architects. That's interesting because that basically talks about the privilege of being able to be remote from major turmoil or large-scale social issues, which is I think very descriptive the way that you describe City College versus Columbia. So you mentioned Bernard Schumi and you had the opportunity to work at his office as well as with Raphael Vignoli and with Rem Koolhaas. And then you started your previous firm, Open Office. The last firm and your current firm, uh, Art plays an increasingly important role in your approach to architecture. Could you talk about the takeaways and the learnings that you had in working at those three firms and then how you chose to step out and start your own firm and, and why you chose to focus on the projects you focus on. So Vignoli was the first firm that I worked on. It was between first year and third year at Columbia as a student. So it was 1992, 1993. And it, it was the years of the Tokyo Forum when Rafael Vignoli was doing uh, the Tokyo Forum. And the biggest imprint from that few months because it was was to work with SGI computer systems and to do to use graphic cards. In the 90s the computers were not networked. And so we would take a card. So we had we would take a card, let's say drawing a 922B and working on the bathroom section. So I taking the plan and I'm taking the elevation working on both drawings. When I'm done with the drawing, I return the card so somebody else can go and open the drawing. Like if I'm in the middle of the drawing and I need to open the overall section, I have to watch who is, and and the the card is not there. I have to look for who has that card and wait until that that drawing is closed. And so the incredible methodology of uh, Vignoli's work environment where it was a gigantic open office with like hundreds of people, everyone with their cards, everyone with their computer, people with SGH machines to one side, room for, because the machines at that moment would generate tremendous heat. And so you had to have a window to the outside and an air conditioning system in order to keep those machines going. And then the, the uh, model room downstairs and I ended up working in the model room. I circled from the computer room upstairs or the dra- drafting room downstairs to the model making room. We, we built a $2 million model that went to Tokyo that summer with its own fire extinguishing system, lighting, all kinds of wheels that, that would put it together. And then there was a, a great workshop and, and then there was a record. And then I worked work records, and then we would organize all the construction photos from every day into different files. And so the clarity of mind of that office, how everything was meticulously organized to 
to create large buildings was very different from what I had ever done in architecture before. And then I worked at Bernard Schumi, and that office was very focused on competitions, public works, public buildings. We Bernard never did a residence or a private home or apartment, only public buildings, only buildings won by competition. And so I worked at for uh, for um, Bernard doing the uh, student center at Columbia, Le Frenois, that was another uh, university building in France, in Lille, France, and concentrated on all kinds of spaces for learning and, 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 and a lot with also how to communicate with form and with graphics what program was, you know, without saying the word auditorium, how do you make the auditorium part of the building or central to the building, or how do you make a classroom accessible from multiple places? And so Bernard was very much focused on program and on publicness. The projects that really launched your career independently were Dia Beacon and the Jewish Museum. How did you get those projects and, and what would you say role did they play in shaping the rest of your work that was to follow? I was still at OMA when Dia started to percolate as a potential project. It was through the introduction of Jessica Stockholder, and a sculptor that was doing a show at Dia and she said, I think you should be working with young people. And I think she basically made the introductions to Michael Govan. Michael Govan, who's now at LACMA, was our age, was our peer. And Dia was on 22nd Street. And we were in Chelsea also. Our house and our um, office was in Chelsea. And so we formed a group first to kind of measure and help organize the work of the Abicon, and then we did an exhibition with Jorge Pardo at Dia 22nd Street. One thing led to the other. We were introduced to Robert Irwin, and then he said, I think these kids can do the, the, the project. And then, so it was like, a, it was a very organic, the Jewish Museum through friendship with the woman that is the director there, Claudia Gould, with whom I had done a show at Artist Space, in 1999, and so it was a set of relationships that personal relationships that 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 led to the sense that these projects can be done and we can do it and we can do it for that budget and things of that nature. So going forward to the the project that we'll be focusing on today, the Arts Alliance Building. So the the building is in Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia. And it was a renovation of a historic property that was used by the University of the Arts. Tell us what was included in the scope of, of work for that project for you. So the Rittenhouse Square in Philadelphia, it's a very well-defined public space surrounded by beautiful buildings that have changed over time, but retain their, Rittenhouse Square has retained its centrality and importance. And so the Art Alliance, it's a historic building that used to be a mansion, but then was gifted to the Art Alliance. And it became a, a place where artists would 
have shows and would gather and they had a restaurant. But like all these institutions, they require constant nurturing. And so the city and the Art Alliance itself needed kind of a reinforcement of that nurturing energy. And so the University of the Arts associate kind of merged with the Art Alliance, I think in 2018 or 17. And so we came in through a personal recommendation in 2018 or 19. I, I have to get back to you with the date. They sort of blend together after a while, right? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And then so with the scope of work was to restore and make it into a, basically a home for the arts. I'd imagine there's a lot of challenges in that type of a, a renovation or reimagination of a space. So tell us about the particular problems or challenges that you faced in uh, the renovation work that, that you did at the Arts Alliance building. So I'm reading a book called Inventing Downtown, that it's about art spaces in the 50s and 60s in New York, artist-led spaces. And when we were doing the Art Alliance, one of the things that we wanted to do was to make the door the doors larger so that you could move artwork inside the different rooms. But we didn't want it to create a gigantic door. And so what we did is we doubled the doors, but we with the same detail that we created a, a detail, uh, we created a motif and we did laser cut panels, doors with metal doors with glass, metal doors and, uh, with glass. And then we reorganized the frame of the door using the existing frame, but then adding a section to it so that it would feel appropriate to the existing building. And so one of the things that I always teach when, that I always try to impart in students when I teach is there's no material that comes in endless supply. Everything has to be done either on a time frame or on a material frame. So if you do concrete, you cannot pour concrete forever. You, you know, at some point, you have to change the track. And if you're doing bricks, at some point, you have to go for that day and continue the next day. If you're using plywood, you, it's four by eight, maybe 12 feet, but that's it. And so the idea of how you connect different materials that are fragmented in time or, or, or material size, it's something that I work with constantly and I try to think about, not just what I'd like to do, but how is this going to be made? And I think also, what make sure I understand this correctly. So with the Art Alliance building, the, the scope that you were tasked with, it, uh, I think if I understand correctly, it's about three areas. It's one, it's the layouts and the way the building is organized. Two, it's the design and the finishes, for example, like the doors and the windows. And the third one, and appealing back a little bit, was updating and upgrading the mechanical systems. Is that Was that basically the three scopes of work? Yes. Basically, it, it was mostly interior architecture and respecting the shell of the building and not altering the overall envelope of the building. And we work with Jacobs Wiper, and they are the uh, architects for the university. They work in many buildings for the university. And so they have a very long-standing relationship 
with the university and all the systems the university uses. And so we were supported by them and worked with them to integrate everything from the elevators, new elevator openings into the existing building to the mechanical, the, the larger or smaller mechanical rooms or mechanical panels or mechanicals into the existing architecture and lighting codes and things like that. Yes. Could you explain for our listeners who may not be may not know this? What's the idea of an executive architect and a design architect? Why does that structure work, and, and how do those two firms work together on a project? So, in general, we build things. In general, really, or, or speculate and, and present the drawing and send it. Usually, our work it's 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 about building things, and we usually do things from beginning to end. Some projects I have been working with other architects as part of a larger team. FX Collaborative is one of the firms that I work with, and Jacobs Wiper is another firm. And so, in one of the things that I try to impart in my team is that it's a horizontal organization. So, the traditional structure is that things beginning to end. And then the more common structure in large buildings and in New York City is there will be a design architect, let's say Thomas Hederwick, and there will be a executive architect, let's say a slice architect, and they together they would do a building for, let's say, related. Now, that is a model that I'm not really familiar with. I, I, I don't work that often with that type of model. In the case of the Art Alliance, Jacobs Wiper is the executive architect and the architect of record. And I'm the design architect and I work an interior architect. And so the way we work is we create a shared scope of work and a shared tasks and I present to them. And then we, in dialogue, we edit the work and then we present to the client. And so one of the things that I try to avoid, well, one of the things that I try to avoid, yes, is saying I did this or I did that. First of all, because I think in the same spirit that I was saying before, there's no tabula rasa. There's no starting from scratch. And there's no doing things by yourself in architecture. Architecture is a work of consensus. Everything we do Somebody pays for it, somebody builds it, somebody designs it. And so by the time something gets built, there's at least a number of people that have agreed that this is what they're going to do. And so in the case of working with Jacob's Wiper, I only move forward when I have convinced everyone in the team that that's worthwhile doing. And, and it works fairly well. I'm very happy to be doing, we're doing a second project together and I'm very happy to be working for this client and in association with Jacob Swiper. Do you know what's so interesting is anyone that's worked in architecture, I I believe has a sensitivity and appreciation for the teamwork aspect of our industry, but the, the highest award, the Pritzker Prize, often emphasizes this idea that design is actually this lone wolf process where there is this one person that identifies 
the design and they're the ones that are, are rewarded for that, as opposed to the entire team of many diverse people that are usually uh, responsible for the production of it. And I think that those are probably the, I imagine the most successful uh, architects is me as a client, as a developer, I think it's the architects that are able to think and to collaborate and to combine and adjust and uh, make sense of difficult situations are the best ones, regardless of any asset, asset class. Absolutely. I think it's our culture always looks for figureheads rather than the collective. Yeah. And I think it's probably not lost on, on us. If you look at the breadth the entire kind of length of people that have won the Pritzker Prize, it's not very reflective of the entire body of people that work in architecture. It's for a long time been dominantly males. So I think that this kind of notion of thinking more broadly in a new generation of architects like you to kind of push that forward is, is exactly what we need. I'm going to take a break here to let our listeners know about some great news. I'm very excited that we'll be having Phil Jessu on later this season. He's the Director of Development at Strategic Capital, which is the U.S. subsidiary of a major Chinese uh, real estate development company. Our conversation will include many things from the differences in American and Chinese design sensibilities to immigration, and all of this in the context of one of his uh, recent projects. So please subscribe to the American Building Podcast uh, now to stay up to date on all the episodes coming this season. So, Galia, one of the most profound critiques of our profession is that we exist to serve the wealthy and sort of wealthy interests. And the designs that are often most celebrated are the ones that are very unusual, very extravagant, and very expensive. From your perspective, how have you tried to balance this uh, desire for creative, unusual work with something that can be enjoyed by everybody? I think that's a really good question. Let me try to respond that from the point of view of art and working in the arts. Sometimes there's a confusion that art is a pricey thing. It's an expensive thing that uh, only has value related to monetary value and it relates to Sotheby's and the big galleries and the auction houses and all these things. When I think of art, I think that art is ever present in every culture, in every level of culture. And if you go, and every level of society, and if you go to anyone's house, you will see an object, a moment where something is celebrated. And a, a photograph put to the side, a piece of canvas covering a table, things, an altar of sorts. These things always relate the past and the future, a child that is born or a person that died. Like, how do you commemorate somebody in your family that has passed away? What type of music do you put to celebrate somebody's wedding? What do you do when a child is born? And so all these things that are important moments, we all have objects and rituals to connect to those things. And so the idea that only wealthy and extravagant have access to art or have access to high architecture, it's not. It's unreal. It's not real. People that are not attuned to beauty and cannot see beauty if it doesn't have a price tag, there's a difference between something being expensive 
on something being beautiful. And I'm very interested in beauty, but I'm not interested in, in expensiveness. Earlier on, we talked about uh, some of your travel in Mexico and particularly what you had seen in handmade dolls as this representation that, that beauty and art doesn't have to occur in the place that we imagine it. It must have to in this kind of square box. Could you talk about that experience? Yes. So at Columbia, many times we take the students to different places. And one of the places we go with the housing studio is to Mexico City to study collective housing in Mexico City. And one of the trips that, one of the stops in that trip is to go to the markets, to the popular markets. Process started because we wanted the students to be aware of different techniques that people use for weaving, for fabrics, for colors, for ceramics. And so what you see is this beautiful object of things that are completely recyclable and recycled from and used fully. And so I really admire that. I think that there's so many lessons for us and for our futures. And again, I use the word futures because I don't think that there is a future. I think there's many futures. And I think it's really important to think about futures and to be aware that that the future is a choice. And so when, when you are in Mexico, you see a lot of potentials. So you, you've described this idea of art in many everyday objects. And then also you've had the opportunity to work on a large scale, the, the underline in Miami, this idea that you can bring art to really unexpected places and make it much more accessible. Could you talk about how you hope to make uh, art more accessible on a very large scale like this project? So art is everywhere. It's a question of allowing it to be, not taking it apart, helping it, allowing different communities to manifest their connection to the earth and their connection to art, because it's all connected, right? It's like dance, you know, music. It's related to making efforts. The origin of music is one, two, three, up. And so that you would breathe together and you would make a rhythm so that you could lift something. And so music and dance and art and building, it's all everywhere and connected. And, and one of favorite things is thinking about bricks. How many millennia have we been using brick for and how much we still use bricks and ceramics and thinking about ceramics as something that it's used for aerospace. The rockets that are going to space now have a very thin coat of ceramic material and the same ceramic that remains feeling in your teeth. And then you have bricks that are another type of ceramic, but it's all the same uh, process of taking dirt from the earth and baking it and using it. And so that sense of, where things come from and how to use what we got and how to preserve what we have temporarily in our hands. It's all part of the same cycle. And so I see the underline, I see the Art Alliance, I see the University of the Arts, I see the Jewish Museum, I see the City of New York, I see the work that I do for houses, all as kind of being 
in relationship to the ground and the materials that I'm uh, giving and to think about resources as something that no matter the circumstances, I, I have to be careful of the resources. So the, you mentioned materials like brick, which was developed in ancient Syria and other like uh, other materials from the earth, say, for example, felt started in ancient Turkey. In all of these projects that you've worked on, what are some of the, the materials that you've used uh, besides the ones that you mentioned that have allowed you to deliver a really iconic, beautiful product, but also be cost effective as well? Yes, we used to do a lot of exhibition designs. Right now, that type of work with the pandemic, there's not that much work being done for exhibitions or large-scale exhibition at the moment. But one of the things that I love about doing exhibition design is that we use wood materials, MDF, and we recycle many times the different components but it's all about color and thinking about proportions and colors and making things very specific. So if you're doing a Modigliani, Amadeo Modigliani show one month and then a year later you're doing an Isaac Misrahi or Bulle Marx, maybe the exact same materiality and in the same space, but a completely different color palette, graphics and volumetrics that you work with. And so I use color very purposeful. I learn from artists. When we work with Robert Irwin, I, I learn a lot about color and light and proportions from math. I have a very deep understanding of the relationship between math and volume and the volume that something takes and the volume that it displaces. Also, so that the negative volume it's a very important part of design too, and form making. And so the many lessons from the blob years, the Columbia University 90s, where we were working with geometry before you could just do a curve. When you have to plot a curve, knowing the quadratic function for that curve, uh, all that kind of it's embedded in me. And so I think it's uh, the materials are. I don't, I really, I don't really use any exotic materials. It's materials that are available to everyone. Which I'm guessing is that sensitivity towards materials probably going to be even more important as uh, climates change. Like for example, here in New York and New Jersey, the weather getting increasingly more humid in the summertime. So you've, you mentioned earlier that you're a, a professor and you probably had the opportunity to interact with and meet many, 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 many students over time. Many of our listeners are at that pivot point from graduate school into their first job or perhaps one of their early jobs and thinking of starting their own firm. With the particular opportunities that exist now in a pandemic, with a lot of social change happening, what advice would you have to an architect just starting out or in the beginning portions of their career right now? So my advice before used to be to not work from home. Because my sense was that you have to create an environment where you bid on yourself. You rent a space, you make a, a business card, you pay rent for your space, you get a computer, and you, especially, my advice was especially for women, because I had a sense that the domestic, that colliding the workspace and the domestic space was not very fruitful. 
if you were also somebody that takes care of your home. That, I would have to revise that because there are a lot of very creative ways now of working from home and repurposing your home as a place that has a variety of functions. But I, I would say that my recommendation to recent graduates would be to consider the material world as something that you have to go and learn. It's not some it, the, the limitation of the digital world, the limitation of what you can imagine and do from from your computer. They need to be met with the uh, physical world, and there is a resistance in the physical world that you cannot replicate at home or in a, in, in the digital environment. And so when I see the kind of break between a person working on a site and a person designing on a digital space, they are getting further and further apart. And so when um, and our educational system cannot, we cannot take people to go and work on a site. Somehow you have to find a way of learning that and connecting to that. And so my advice would be to do something physical as part of everything else that you're doing. And so one of the things that I always tell students is that if an aunt or a friend is moving and they want to enlarge their kitchen or house, that is a good job to do. You don't need to tell them, no, go get another architect. No, you say, let's work on it. Let's try to get a permit. Let's try to get a construction team and go to Home Depot and Lowe's and build that thing because there's a lot of things that cannot be replicated in either the educational environment or the corporate environment. And you'll be much more useful as an architect if you know how deep is an electrical box inside a sheetrock that if you don't know, or you know how many pipes come into a house and go out of a house. Uh, what is a chase wall? I know. So I think those things, those simple things, cannot be taken for granted and cannot be misunderstood as something that somebody else w- will figure out. I think that is such spot on advice. So I just finished renovating uh, my parents' house in Princeton in central New Jersey. And this is probably the smallest project I've ever worked on as an architect, either as a designer, as a construction manager, or working for another person in a development company. And I can tell you the amount that I have learned in my 50, 60 trips I did to Lowe's about everything from the the special types of European-sized screws that you need if you just bought uh, kitchen cabinet handles from Europe because you can't use American screws on that. Those types of things, I think, are so detailed, and it allows you to have a, a much better appreciation of those two variables that count a lot, which is uh, time and money. And if you don't understand how all these pieces come together, your appreciation of time and money will only be a fraction of what it's supposed to be. So I love it. I think that is the best advice ever you gave. Wonderful, wonderful. I'm very glad that you did your parents' home. So many people uh, brush them off. And it's so important to to take those um, um, asks seriously and, and deliver uh, to the best of our abilities. And I think particularly what I feel like 
when it is someone that you know, whether it's your parent or a sibling or a spouse, like their space, their house that you are working on, your your level of detail is going to be so high because in the end, anytime when I was at a certain point, we're like, oh, does it matter? Like, it's my parents' house. Of course it matters. And for me to then un- understand, like, if you are looking for less than a, like, I'm not crazy, a 16th inch of variation on the floor, what is it that you need to do in order for that reality to actually happen? And if it doesn't, what do you do in order to mask some of those fine differences on the levelness of a floor? So I think it's a wonderful thing. So I just want to thank you so much for uh, joining us today on the American Building Podcast, Galia. And if you want to hear the behind the scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever it is that you listen. Uh, We all know that real estate is a really tough industry to make it. And how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? You can hear from me, the team at Michael Graves, and many of our spectacular guests like Elia on what we did to make it where we are. So you can grab our exclusive guide, Seven Tips on How to Stand Out in Your Field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create in order to help others build homes and communities. Today, Gally and I have made donations to City Harvest, which provides food for the food insecure in New York City. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves.